Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the India Game Changer. Today we are joined by Ankit Kedia, and always tell me if I have the name mispronounced, a founder at Capital A. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for doing this on the weekend. I really appreciate it. How are you doing today, by the way? Oh, I'm doing absolutely great. I'm uh, actually on the road. I am in a place called Bhuvaneshwar in uh, uh, the eastern part of India. I'm here for uh, you know a small uh, vacation, but uh, this is something which uh, uh, really is... Uh, uh, I've been looking forward to this. I've been looking forward to talk to you. I've listened to your podcasts uh, in the past, and Thank you. Uh, a couple of them uh, have been extremely uh, uh, inspiring, uh, especially for someone who's trying to work on the tech-enabled uh, startup ecosystem. Yeah, it's good to hear the stories, I think. It, al- it always changes my perspective, and I always learn something, and that's kind of what I'm hoping that the audience gets as well, that they'll be slightly entertained, but more importantly, they'll be informed. It's the most important part of this for me. Do you travel a lot? I mean, India is a big country, right? And there's a lot to do there. But do you travel a lot for, you know, meeting potential limited partners, meeting potential startups, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, all my life I've been uh, I've been used to the fact that uh, face-to-face interaction with a lot of your clients or limited partners or founders uh, has always been more impactful rather than, uh, you know, uh, exchanging notes on a Zoom call or just interacting with each other on phone. But uh, yes, I do travel a lot, uh, most largely to Delhi and Bombay, which uh, these are the two main hubs for a lot of emerging startups. And uh, Delhi, especially given the kind of uh, entrepreneurs that are springing up over there right now, uh, it's the number one. I want to get to your background in a second, but this is actually interesting for me. Is there a difference, right? Like if you look at Silicon Valley, you look at what's happening in the Midwest, in Chicago, you look at New York, and you go down to Miami, like the startup ecosystems are distinctly different. If Delhi and Bombay are different as well, what's the difference for people that may not know? I think uh, the sheer fact that the north of India is more densely populated and there are a lot of uh, engineering institutes up north, there is a tendency for a lot of startup founders to uh, base themselves out of north, right? And uh, that's usually the reason why a lot of uh, uh, startup founders make Delhi, Noida, Gurgaon, uh, Gurgaon especially because it's a much newer city right. and uh, a lot of uh, uh, founders already had their uh, you know, offices and uh, ecosystems there. So it, it's much easier for them to set up bases, find the right talent. So Gurgaon or Delhi is usually a jack of everything. You know, you, you have founders uh, across every space, uh, you know, based out of that part of the country. Uh, and when you come down a little on the west side, you have uh, uh, in Bombay, and because it's also known as the financial capital of India, right. uh, you find a lot of fintech startups over there. Uh, and, you know, they usually have their offices uh, in the, uh, uh, the, the Bandra Kurla complex, which is, again, one of the top uh, uh, fintech spots there. And then you come down south to Bangalore, Bangalore, uh, also known as the Silicon Valley of India, 
and the or the outsourcing capital of India or the world for that matter. Uh, you have uh, a lot of tech-based startups, especially in the uh, AI, ML, uh, machine learning space, and uh, you have a lot of uh, tech startup space in India. And usually, the choice of uh, most startups is to come to India because of the VC uh, to come down to Bangalore. I'm sorry is uh, because of the entire venture capital ecosystem that exists in Bangalore. You have all uh, major VCs uh, who have their offices in Bangalore. What Can we just back up for a second and get some of your background as well so we can have some context as to how you got into this too? Yeah, if there was a book ever to be written on how people shift their careers 360 degrees, I think I probably would be... Uh, chapter number one over there. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I had no plans of getting into investing, but uh, how I started my career was uh, the classic uh, uh, family managed business playbook. Uh, all my life, uh, I've seen my family uh, running a business. Uh, we had this plastic packaging business, which my father started 40 years ago in Gohati, Assam. And uh, then we moved to Bangalore in 96, and that's when he started this business of uh, pet bottles or uh, blow-molded uh, containers and packaging uh, products for the FMCG, pharma, and uh, you know the alcohol industry. And uh, I came into business in 2006 after finishing my uh, undergrad in a school in Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo. And... Uh, uh, then came back, worked for my father for a year, and then uh, trained on the shop floor in our uh, factory. And that's where, uh, in fact, in your background, you see this girl holding a, a bottle, right? right? Which seems to be like a cosmetic or a lotion bottle. That's something that we used to manufacture for brands like Unilever, Procter & Gamble, Recommend Kieser, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, all the beverage bottles that we used to manufacture. And... Uh, uh, my dad uh, had a very clear conversation with me that, you know, though uh, you're, you're entitled to, you know, have a room to yourself uh, right away, but I'm not going to give it to you that easily. You really need to earn it. And uh, that's when I started as a trainee on the shop floor. Uh, and mind you, I was a commerce graduate with absolutely uh, no, uh, uh, you know, uh, background in engineering academics. And... <laughs> And it was very clear that I had to report into the factory manager. And for the two years that I worked over there was perhaps uh, an engineering course by itself. Right. And, uh, you know, I learned about the machines and the electrical, the mechanicals and everything, worked my way up. And after four years of, uh, you know, training, I think that is when finally I was given a small role on the board to handle the sales and marketing for uh, uh, Manjushri Technopack Limited, that's the company's name. Got it. And then we uh, grew the business and we had our first private equity infusion from a homegrown uh, private equity fund called Kedara Capital. Got it. Uh, uh, founders of which are uh, Sunish Sharma, uh, you know, he was the managing director at uh, General Atlantic, uh, Manish Kejriwal, he was the head at Tematech and Nishan Sharma again from GA. Uh, they found a fund in collaboration with another UK, one of the oldest private equity funds in UK called CDR. 
And that's when they infused the first uh, uh, private equity capital into our business. And that's when I really learned about how investment works. And, uh, you know, you uh, had this 200-page document that you need to sign and, <laughs> and, and go through every clause. But I think that was by far one of my most enriching experiences of my life where you had this fund which really wanted to get hands-on into the business and uh, really helped us open up our vision into how to expand, how to hire the right people, how to set the right processes and systems. I mean, even by far, uh, uh, you know, as far as family businesses are concerned, we ran the show, you know, the way it had to be run. And I'm proud of the fact that we ran it much better. But the moment you have an external, uh, you know, uh, fund that comes in and that agrees to grow alongside you in the business becomes extremely uh, critical for the blueprint for the next three or four years. I really want to dig a little bit deeper into a few of the things you've just mentioned, because I don't think you can get away from them. Do you think this lesson that your father was trying to teach you about this entitlement, right? You're entitled to the room, but you're not entitled to it now kind of thing. And encouraging yeah. you or in a way forcing you to just go work on the factory floor where the rest of the employees kind of had to start makes you understand just the difficulty in building the businesses. And then to even go further there, this idea then of getting an external investor who's a private equity investor and combining those things that you've learned into now then thinking, how does that impact the way I look at teams into which I invest and the way that they run their businesses? Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'll, I'll perhaps uh, start with the first one. Uh, I mean, the moment you have uh, a, a foreign educated son uh, who probably, you know, uh, has all the reasons to uh, dive right into the business and you give him give him a role and, you know, and then he'll learn uh, his way into this entire business and probably go through his journey himself. But the reason why he felt it was important to surround me with uh, slightly more experienced employees and a lot of people who've been with the business uh, for a long period of time was to surround me with people to help me understand the business, especially that I came from a non-engineering background. Right. And, uh, and, and from the fact that our business is a, a lot of uh, selling of concept or, uh, you know, uh, at the end of the day, a solution. And that solution cannot be packaged until and unless you know uh, everything about the technical side of things. Right. And that's how I think my brother started uh, when he got into the business four years before I did. And then I think he he probably found success in that and decided to uh, copy-paste with me. As well. <laughs> At least it worked, right? And how about the private equity thing? You, you mentioned this idea of like once you have external capital, right? And this is completely related, I think, to what you do too. Like the way you have to look at your own business has to change, right? Because now you have people that you're growing with. And I think it's really important that that's the way that PE firms look at this thing. Because I think at some level, it must inform the way you invest as a venture investor as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, when when Kedara Capital came in, they came in with a significant minority uh, interest in the company, which means uh, they took upwards of 35% uh, into the business. Yep. And... Uh, the way private equity works, and I'm sure you know of it, that uh, 
you know, they usually come in companies that have a much better visibility of their revenue, their customers, their profitability. And, you know, their aspiration is uh, uh, a, a lot different from what typical venture capital uh, sure. funds have. And, uh, you know, I think when they came in, it was very clear. We, we did not need finance uh, or financial capital into the business because we were extremely fortunate to have banks and uh, we were a public listed company. So we had a bunch of shareholders. Right. Uh, so financial capital wasn't that, that much of a challenge. But what really was the need of the hour at that time was to make sure that we, we had these two manufacturing plants in uh, uh, Bangalore and a lot of our clients uh, was spread across the country. And, you know, they kept saying that uh, I want you to come to I want you to set up a plant in North. I want you to set up a plant in East and West because at the end of it, we were selling air. You know, you you have a Coca-Cola bottle uh, or a Pepsi bottle transporting air from Bangalore to maybe another 200 kilometers away. Right. Logistically, it didn't really make sense. Nope. And, uh, and, and we were contemplating uh, how do we do this? And I think at the right time when these guys came in, I think we got this... Uh, uh, study done uh, on what are the opportunities in various parts of the country. And that's when they actually helped us shape up this uh, entire strategy to, uh, you know, either acquire someone or set up our plants ourselves. And the latter happened uh, that we ended up acquiring another company based out of North, which gave us access to the entire North Belt of customers. But coming back to your point uh, on what's the influence of external capital uh, on what we currently do at Capital A. Mm. I think one thing that I clearly take inspiration from is uh, actually getting involved with the promoters or the founders to figure out if there is a way, any way we could add value to whatever they are doing. And if you see historically, smart founders have always done things their way. They've never... They've never felt the need of having someone tell them what to do. Don't you think that self-awareness is actually a key to business success? This idea of, I know what I know, but there's so many things that I don't know. Even if up until now, those founders have just done the things their way and kind of, you know, like pitbulled people into doing things their own way. But think about your own company. You said this, like we didn't need the financial help, but we kind of figured out that we'd done really well, but that maybe we could take some external viewpoints and do even better kind of thing yeah yeah absolutely uh we have a lot of founders who feel uh there is a need to do more and i think it's a journey that they have to go themselves uh they have to go through it themselves we really can't enforce it we can yeah. probably nudge them to the right direction right or or there are ways that you could tell them that look if you did this uh and you could use benchmarks and say that by doing this, someone else did something better. And if you'd like to give it a shot, but most of the times and more often than not, we've seen that, uh, uh, they do it anyway, uh, <laughs> but they just, it just takes time to get there. You said something else you know, earlier that was really interesting, right? You said private equity investors have visibility on what their, what their businesses look like the, into which they're investing, right? Because there's already cash flow, there's already product, there's already customers. These businesses generally, in a P investment have been going on for a while, sometimes for more than a generation, right? So a little bit different than in this case. But VC investments, particularly at the earliest stage, 
are more like experiments. You're more like funding an experiment. Is that is that fair? And if that's true, like, how do you square that circle with what you've seen with now what you're doing? You know what I mean? A lot of times uh, we see investments are typically their aspiration for that 25x or 50x return on their capital uh, while it may sound unreasonable at times and statistically you only end up finding those diamonds one out of 10 times. It's a function of betting on the right founder and betting on the right uh, addressable market. And hopefully the product evolves uh, over time to get to where it is. But uh, in private equity, we've seen that, you know, they usually come in only when there is enough visibility of they've done five out of 10 things and there is a white space to do another five. And that's typically where they get involved and get, uh, you know, get under the game to really help you get there. But I think especially at, in a stage that we are in, in at Capital A, of all these 16 investments that we've done so far, uh, two out of 16 have been pre-product ideas. Wow, uh, go ahead. Where, where we felt that the founders were uh, one of the best that we've ever seen. And we, we purely went by the founder pedigree and the founder's background in a particular domain or the ability or the vision that he sold. I mean, we, we just barely went by that. So can I ask you this though? A lot of people that come out of like family-run businesses, right? And particularly if they weren't the founders. You weren't the founder. You said your dad was the founder, right? They take less risk going forward, but you've gone right to the top of the funnel, right? You've just gone right to the riskiest part of this. Why did you go to like early stage investing where like you said, one in 10 might work? Like I think that can be improved. To be fair, I have my own theories on this. But you didn't go to Series A or Series B and just say, and I'm putting it in quotes. Yeah, I'm going to take the easy investment way out and just fund growth as opposed to fund the unknown. Why did you do that? I, I think uh, there are two ways uh, that I'd like to answer that question. But uh, the ability to take risk has been something which uh, has been imbibed in all of us right from the beginning. Uh, you know, we went from two plants to uh, 15 manufacturing plants in a span of three years. Uh, I think that's something that we uh, inherently uh, inherited from uh, our family and my father. Right. So that's something that uh, uh, we definitely felt that uh, this is something that we could pull off. Uh, the other thing which really helps us get there is the operating experience and the fact that we know how to read financial statements. We've I mean, I personally done 15 years of business now, so there is a bit of know-how on how and what, where could a company or a founder could go wrong. So with that conviction, uh, at times it's much more easier to take some calculated risk and maybe sometimes even going into the unknown. Uh, but on the other side of things where uh, on the growth stage, uh, usually the deal flow that happens is is then, uh, you know, accessed by funds which have the appetite to deploy 5, 10, 15 million type of checks. Uh, and, you know, in the early stage where we are currently working with uh, 
proprietary capital, the fund one of capital A is proprietary capital, where we've said that this is 25 million. Uh, I'm not answerable to limited partners at this moment, although I'm, uh, you know, building my network of LPs for my fund too. But right now, uh, I, I think I can uh, let loose a, a bit of my experimentation side of uh, my, my, my personality and then hopefully uh, learn my way up into the entire world of investing. Do you think the, it's a it's a great answer, actually. Principal investing is very different from GPLP investing, right? And again, it gets back to part of this conversation we had earlier where if you're running your own company and it's a private company, you don't really answer anybody except to the, the private shareholders. Once you go public, obviously, it's different. But in a principal fund, you kind of answer to whoever the principals are. That's you, right? And, and maybe your family. I don't know. But the point is that once you do the LPGP thing, it's almost like having the private equity investors come in. At some point, it's super helpful to help them for their connections, for their connectivity, for their business acumen. But you also have to answer to them as well, right? So you have to have that balance, yeah? Absolutely. Uh, I, when I say we don't have... Uh uh, LPs to answer to, but at the same time, I have a board to answer to. For sure. I, yeah, it's not a free-for-all, uh, right? It's just a it's just yeah. a different structure of answering. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, absolutely. In fact, every month, uh, we do have to present to the board, uh, which consists of both internal and external advisors on where the fund is going and what's the thesis that we are building, uh, what's, the, uh, what's the current uh, exploding segment that perhaps needs a bit of... Uh, uh, attention in terms of uh, building our thesis. So those are things which we regularly discuss in our monthly board meetings. At the same time, uh, we've also started to connect with a lot of like-minded professionals in particular uh, domains. For example, one of the underlying themes in uh, Capital A is you know supporting the entire electric vehicles and mobility uh, ecosystem where we uh, feel that the future is EV, and while there are a lot of moving pieces on what particular segments of EV uh, sh uh, should be back, but there are that there is enormous potential, and the energy that's coming out from the founders right now is incredible. Perhaps an unprecedented interest in this segment by both the uh, the legacy brands and as well as the newer breed of startup founders. It's pretty exciting, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> what do you mean when you talk about like unconventional ideas in non-existing categories? Do you know what I mean? Because part of, I think, being a great investor, even being a great business builder, to be fair, is just having what I'll call clarity, right? Like you said, you invested in two out of the 16, which was like pre-product, just an idea from the investor. You can kind of talk to them and just think, I can envision, you can see me, my eyes are closed because I'm just kind of visioning this, but like I can envision this thing being five stages ahead and being a success. I think it takes a certain kind of intellectual clarity to get there. Does that make sense? Absolutely. In fact, uh, when we, when I started off, and a very dear friend and a mentor, uh, you know, who uh, we, who I, who I really look up to, we had this conversation around clarity, and I, and I, and I love that word that you just used, Michael. Uh, the word clarity is so important for founders especially when they are starting off i mean they 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 have all the choices in the world a smart guy uh with an engineering degree or a, a, an mba uh, has 
per perhaps is roaming around with multiple offer letters and uh, has a lot of uh, uh, opportunities to participate in uh, uh, you know the entire uh, uh, emerging financial uh, ecosystem of the country this mentor that I really looked up to and you know the, the the piece about clarity is founders who are able to get that initial piece of clarity on what they are doing or what they plan on doing uh, I think that itself is the launch pad for what what's about to come yeah and in a lot of times we've seen that founders while they have uh, that clarity uh, so, you know, the typical four C's that I like to uh, uh, keep on uh, telling all my founder friends, uh, if you have that clarity and you need to evaluate what your choices are, the second C, and if you have the choices in front of you, do you have the courage to make those choices? And after you make the choice, do you have the guts to face the consequences? <laughs> it's just the path to get to what you want but the consequence could be a good consequence or a, or a not so good consequence and as long as you have the clarity to take that choice and the courage to make that choice uh, I think the consequence then becomes immaterial right because you knew what you signed up for exactly. right at the beginning and that's something that we evaluate uh, with the founders and something that I'm very fond of, fond of uh, which I call it a, a vibe check you know, you check everything, right? You check, uh, you do a, you do a check about the business. You do a check about the founders. You find out about uh, his background from the industry or his friends or his colleagues. But I think the vibe is an extremely personalized uh, uh, conversation that you can only do with the founder. And you know, you you, you close your eyes and you try to visualize what he is. Uh, what, what what you're imagining uh, a product to be and i think that that it just gets supplemented by a conversation with the founder uh face to face heart to heart and do you feel like the more conversations you have the better you get at judging what that vibe is uh definitely because when you when you meet him her in two or three different environments you know you 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 get you get to know what they are really thinking about and uh, i think this is a the the conviction just evolves over time uh, you would probably have a second conversation with him or her only if uh, you found the first vibe really vibing with both of you well that's the other thing too right in other words you do have you do want to feel like you're a part of it even at the earliest stages, right, where there's not much of a business to be a part of, you kind of feel like you want to be a part of that thing. I mean, isn't that part of the idea of giving them the money? It's not like you want to micromanage it, but you feel excited about that thing could actually be kind of cool. How can I be right. a part of that? Do you know what I mean? Because like that's your involvement as well, no? And it's different than just giving money, no? It, it, it's something that we uh, struggle with uh, from time to time because when you're so involved with the founders in the early stages you want to make sure that you wear your investor hat and not really the pseudo founder hat right. because that's <laughs> and 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 that's something which i keep telling my team that uh, you know if you if you do get involved with uh, the founders make sure you know where your limits are and you're just not telling him what to do but at least uh, it's it's to ensure you are the GPS for the founder. If you ever need need to be, you you don't really need to 
you know, construct that road for them, but they had to do it themselves. But at the end of the day, uh, while, you know, you could get emotionally involved with uh, an investment, uh, we also need to remember that we have, you know, and if and ever when we launch a fund, we have LPs to answer to. And, uh, you know, the entire uh, uh, investment needs to make a return. And there are other investments which may or may not uh, make it, but uh, on a ever uh, on an overall MOIC level, you still need to make sure your fund is doing well. Agreed. So that that way, you need to be a little hands off uh, while you know getting extremely EQ involved with the founder. Yeah, I think so too. In a way, I kind of look at this as like great parenting, right? You want to make sure your kids don't walk into the middle of the street when the car is coming, but at some level, you kind of want to make sure that they feel confident enough to walk wherever they want to walk without you kind of pulling them back every single time they almost make a mistake. You know what I mean? Anyway, that, that's kind of how I feel like it. I'm curious about this, though. When you look at your portfolio, or I think about this from my equity trading days and my portfolio trading days, we spent a lot of time talking about portfolio management. Like, I need a little bit more of this in my portfolio because I'm already heavily weighted to that kind of thing. Do you think about that, too? Or are you just, like, completely sector agnostic? Like, how do you think about that construction part of this? I think my, uh, given that during my uh, days with the family business, where I spent a lot of time with the entire, uh, the enterprise business side of things, uh, I believe I, I bring a lot to the table as far as B2B businesses are concerned. And uh, while we like to call ourselves an agnostic fund, uh, we, we, and then, Every fund has an evolution of, uh, you know, preferences, and I think we are getting there as well. But, uh, you know, given that we did a lot of key account management, uh, we know how enterprise businesses work. I think that's something that's clearly becoming a, a larger part of our team uh, at Capital A. What what we the antithesis to uh, most of the. Uh, you know, the, the plans of investments that we have going forward is definitely uh, to avoid investing in consumer businesses. And while personally, I love the, uh, the D2C side of things, but the kind of checks that we write uh, and, you know, the startups that we support, I think perhaps may not be the most suited for consumer businesses, maybe for consumer tech, but not for consumer products uh, or, you know, personal care or any, any th that's that side of uh, the landscape. Uh, more, more, more than that, I think uh, even, even emerging businesses in the EV and the FinTech side of things, there are a lot of moving pieces when it comes to, uh, you know, payment gateways or large uh, uh, FinTech products. I think if we get in there early, it's 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 good for us, but most of the fintech uh, uh, deals that we get are upwards of a certain valuation, and where we think we perhaps will not be able to get that ownership and ultimately make that return for us. Right. So uh, we we are moving into a lot of new age uh, sectors where we feel you know we'll be able to invest a lot better, a lot. Uh, uh, target the right type of ownership uh, and help with the right type of, uh, you know, skin in the game, which is the EV and mobility where we have a strong thesis. 
we have a certain sect of fintech that we are working, which is the BNPL and the wealth tech uh, subsectors. Uh, and then the creator economy, uh, which clearly uh, will be the uh, order of the day going forward, uh, you know, as against conventional advertising. And then we have supply chain, uh, which again is uh, turning into a lot of uh, tech first sort of solutions. So some of these things I feel will be, uh, you know, will definitely be very important for the ecosystem going forward. Uh, and that's where our focus is going to be. So tell me about this before I let you go. I think in my mind, the media landscape is changing so rapidly. And the, you can call it the creator economy, you can call it the media landscape. In a way, it doesn't matter to me because I think those two things are merging together in a way that most people don't understand. But if you have a thesis there in the creator space, what are you thinking about and what are you trying to find and unlock? Yeah. I think what 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 we've what we're trying to see is that this is this is work in progress and there are there are a lot of influencers uh whether they're on Instagram or whether they're on a podcast like this or uh whether they're on a you know uh, a professional platform like LinkedIn right. uh, there is there is so much happening over there the clear missing piece is the monetization of uh, whatever the influencers are trying to do. <laughs> and I see you smiling. <laughs> and, and, I'm and, listening and, to learn, man. Go ahead. <laughs> and that is something which uh, we are trying to figure out with a lot of our founders that, you know what, you built a great product. You built a platform for influencers to come and, you know, uh, create content. But then at the end of the day, how how do they say that, look, as against a full-time job, this is something which I want to do full-time and make money for my lifestyle, for my needs, and for my future. I think that's something that's, that's work in progress. Uh, our thesis says it'll get there, but I think uh, it's very early for a country like India. You know, very recently we had uh, the government announcing a tax on everything that the influencers are trying to do. Uh, if they create content on Instagram and if they partner with another brand, uh, they would have to pay a tax on that. So I think it, it, it's something that needs to, that also needs collaboration with the policymakers or the government to make sure that a space like this doesn't lose steam, uh, you know, in the entire, uh, in, in the entire aspiration of taxing the sector. Yeah, I mean, look, I think you and I could have an entire conversation just on what the government influence is on the entire tech scene in general, but it's specifically in the media sector. I won't do that today. Maybe we'll have you come back and do that afterwards. I really want to thank you for taking the time today to do this. Anki Kedia, a founder at Capital A. This was really awesome. Thank you again. Thank you, Michael. It was great uh, talking to you and uh, look forward to